You're listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs, the podcast, the audio supplement to our blog of the same name about the science, art, and popular culture of mostly Mesozoic life. I'm Nati. I'm Mark. And I'm Niels. Episode 22 is a Tetsu Con 2022 special, how serendipitous, as we give the whole episode to our own modesty briefing of the 9th Tetrapod Zoology Conference, which took place earlier this month, the first in-person version of the event since the pandemic began. And what a return it was. An intensive three days which culminated in a field trip to Crystal Palace Park for a guided tour of Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins' sculptures. And you won't just be hearing from us, as happily, we were also able to secure a few short interviews from some of the speakers, attendees, and organisers alike amid the hubbub. Stay tuned. But first, uh, Niels, I believe you have something for us about a certain contested, possibly aquatic, long-snouted theropod. Yes, uh, of course. Uh, this can mean only one thing. Nasofenator. Uh-huh. <laughs> you thought it was going to be the other thing, didn't <laughs> yeah. you? And it wasn't. What did you it think wasn't, I was going wasn't to it. say? <laughs> it wasn't. Psych. Psych. Um, th- there is a new dinosaur. There is a new dinosaur again. Uh, this is one in the Halska Raptorine clade. Uh, now, this uh, Halska Raptor and kin, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, These are uh, dromaeosaurs from Asia, well known for being what is often described as waterfowl-like. I know you can't see me, but I'm using my fingers as quotation marks. And um, a prime candidate for possibly semi-aquatic theropods, whatever semi-aquatic means, of course. But among the evidence for a wet and watery lifestyle for these duck-sized dromaeosaurs is the proportions of the neck and forelimbs, which uh, do seem to work well for a swimming hunting style that allows the animal to extend its neck to catch fish. There are certain analogues there with uh, swimming birds as well as swimming reptiles. Uh, Now, this new dinosaur, Nato Venator polydontus, described in a new paper in Nature Communications Biology by Sungjin Lee et al., seems to provide further evidence that the Halscaraptorines were swimming hunters. Indeed, swimming hunter is what Nato Venator means. It has nothing to do with the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. <laughs> or indeed with Nati. Um, alas. Alas. You'll get your moment, yeah. Uh, Himapandocus. <laughs> Himapandocus, yes. <laughs> the uh, specimen is largely complete and well-articulated. In addition to the typical Halscaraptorine bow plan, this Nato Venator has a highly streamlined torso, allowing it to move swiftly in the water, much like certain diving birds, such as auks, loons, and cormorants. We didn't find these particular bits on the other Halscaraptorines before, so it is likely that Halscaraptor and its other friends were built in a similar way. The streamlined body shape, along with the other adaptations found in this clade, is absent in other dinosaurs, as it is in modern non-swimming birds, such as ostriches. So, here is quite compelling evidence of what a swimming non-avian dinosaur might look like. Researchers involved in certain other possibly aquatic theropods take note. Do you know what it doesn't have? It doesn't have a really great big sail on the back. It doesn't have like massively extended um, vertebrae. Just no, and in fact, it has quite long legs. Long legs? Yes, yeah. yes. So, you know. It does have a long <laughs> snout. 
The paper is open access. Yay! Yay! And Yay. linked in the show notes as always. So yeah, the idea with these things is that they uh, they would have floated, but they would have swam with their with their front limbs because they would have been sort of flat and um, extended their neck to catch fish. I mean, it's all conjuncture, but it it seems like if there's any way for a theropod to be aquatic, this is probably the way. Right. Excellent. Thank you. Yeah. Well, other than birds, obviously. Other than birds, other than penguins, you know. And rails and diving ducks and the like, which are sort of actually a bit similar to this, although the legs are quite different. Yeah, but um, I think I think the main takeaway here is that the torso is sort of shaped yes. like the torso of a cormorant or, or a loon. Yeah, compressed. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Compressed torso, yes. yeah. Which, which is quite different from other dromaeosaurs. So I think that's the take-home point here. Yeah, of course. Excellent. Thank you, Niels. Uh, Mark... Uh, not a load of hot air, hopefully, but some intriguing hypotheses about air sex. Yes, well, more than hypotheses, some actual evidence here of the evolution of um, pneumaticity uh, in dinosaurs. So we have here the absence of an invasive air sac system in the earliest dinosaurs suggests multiple origins of vertebral pneumaticity by Aureliano et al. published in Nature Scientific Reports. Again, so it's open access. Again, Yay! it's almost like we favour open access things that we can actually read. <laughs> Perish the thought. Yeah. So, as we all know, we're not cheap, are we? We're very cheap. No, it's we, egalitarian we, we, spirit is what it is. Exactly. We can be bought really it's easily. Always maintained. Science should be free. Quid. We're, we're basically for hire. Um, as we all know, theropods said pneumatized skeletons, that is a system of air sacs that invaded the bones and aided lightness, uh, obviously key to avian flight, of course. Um, initially, long, long ago, it was thought to be something exclusive to birds that you know, developed along with flight. Then it was revealed that actually other theropods had it too, and indeed sauropods. Um, and in fact, pterosaurs did pterosaurs too. Pterosaurs as well, yeah. Yeah. So the evidence was there that either sauriscians and pterosaurs evolved, these, evolved this uh, pneumaticity convergently, or it was an ancestral ornithodiron trait that was somehow lost in ornithischians. Um, that's been the thinking. But hang on a minute, because the also this paper have used micro CT scanning to analyze some remains or some vertebrae mostly from uh, a few remarkably complete late Triassic dinosaurs from Brazil, uh, Briolestes, Pampadromaeus, and Nathavorax. And I always want to say Nath- Nathothorax or something, but Nathavorax. Two of them are sauropodomorphs. Spirulestes and Papadromius are sauropodomorphs. And Nathavorax is an hererosaurid. And of the three, Spirulestes and Nathavorax are roughly contemporaneous, whereas Papadromius is a bit more recent. Um, but yeah, in all three cases, they found this pneumaticity was absent. It wasn't like the bones weren't full of all sorts of complex things going on, but it all appeared to be vascular and related to sort of blood vessels and fat and the like. Um, rather than related to pneumaticity. Though it's worth noting that Pampadromaeus, as the authors know, was excavated in a stratum slightly younger than the other two, did have a uh, pseudo-polycamera vascularized architecture, um, much different from the chaotically organized pattern of the older Briolestes. In other words, um, it was starting to show signs of going towards, yeah, having chambers in there, almost like it was on its way to developing pneumaticity which is consistent right. with what's been observed so you can you can observe the evolution almost in real time frozen in time rather yeah ish it is consistent with what has been observed elsewhere in other dinosaurs so basically neither sauropodomorph nor this rarosaurid showed signs of pneumaticity although one of them was sort of getting there maybe and it's significant because it means that it was not a basal trait to sauriscians as a whole certainly and certainly not to ornithodira 
So right. it does imply... So it evolved at least three times then? It, it does imply that, yes. It evolved three times. Um, once, in sauris- well, sorry, once in theropods, once in sauropodomorphs, and once in pterosaurs, all completely separately, which is pretty remarkable given how specialised yeah, specialized it is. And in the modern world, we really only have birds with this kind of system, I believe. <laughs> Highly significant in terms of the evolution of birds and of Sauriscians generally, I think. Uh, thank you so much, Mark. Uh, and finally, uh, Zul Duel. The same researchers who, in 2017, described Zul Crurivastata, the ankylosaur, from the Campanian Judith River Formation of Montana, have returned with not only more of the dinosaurs' appearance to reveal, but with evidence of how these dinosaurs use their famous tail clubs. The paper, Paleopathological Evidence for Intraspecific Combat in Ankylosaurid Dinosaurs, by Victoria Arbor, Lindsay E. Zano, and David C. Evans, describes exactly that. Ankylosaurs fought each other with their tail clubs, and sexual selection is more likely to have driven their evolution than anything else. But you don't have to listen to me, for at Niels's prompting, none other than Dr. Victoria Arbor herself, the paper's lead author, and Casmosaurus contributor emeritus, by the way, is here to tell us more. Uh, Victoria, uh, welcome to the podcast, and thank you so much for your time. Uh, without further ado, then, could you please tell us about the Zool Duel? <laughs> yes, the Zool Duel. So this is a project that I've been having a lot of fun with for the last few years. Um, it's based off of new evidence from the body of Zool Curvastator, which is a dinosaur I helped name back in 2017 with David Evans at the Royal Ontario Museum while I was a postdoc there. And at the time, yes. uh, only Zool's skull and tail club had been prepared, and the body was still encased in a like 35,000 pound block of rock. So it took a little while to get the body prepared, but as it was revealed, we saw that well, first of all, amazingly, all of the skin and armor is preserved in place, which is great and what we were hoping for. Uh, but what we weren't expecting is that some of the spikes on the flanks were actually broken and rehealed. Right. And they were basically only broken in a very sort of narrow range around the hips and only on the sides of the body. And that matched up really well with some ideas I'd been playing around with for a few years now. Um about whether or not ankylosaurs maybe used their tail clubs mostly on each other. Uh, and would we expect to see pathologies maybe on the rib cage or sort of along the flanks? Right. So this is sort of pretty cool tantalizing evidence that uh, these are injuries from another zool rather than, say, from a predator. Uh-huh. Okay, that is that is so cool. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, it was a pretty amazing discovery. Um, yeah, just a really awesome serendipitous fluke that we have this kind of evidence preserved in this amazing specimen. But it's cool to see your own sort of pet hypothesis kind of corroborated in in the actual specimen. Yeah, very much so. So one of the things that I had suggested as far back as my work on the biomechanics of tail clubbing back in sort of 2009 that I did as a master's student, um, I had suggested that we could look for pathologies, but I wasn't really sure how we would do that sort of rigorously. Um, so I've certainly seen pathological ribs for ankylosaurs. And my gut feeling or vibes is that there are more of those from ankylosaurs than other dinosaurs. But really systematically surveying that would just be this 
really daunting project and might just yield inconclusive results overall. So this is great to have this other kind of evidence from the osteoderms preserved in place. Um, I just never expected we would even have a specimen like that, so I never even suggested it previously. And um, do do I understand correctly that although this is very clear evidence of intraspecific combat, um, it doesn't necessarily rule out the idea that it could still have been used uh, defensively against predators? Yeah, I think that's a really good point to bring up. Um, So... I favor the idea that tail clubs evolved under sexual selection and were mostly used for intraspecific combat. Right. Mm. But of course, structures can have more than one function. Yes. Um, and so there's nothing to say that they could not or did not use their tail clubs against predators. What we do talk about in the paper, although it's largely in the supplementary materials, is we looked at if we could see any evidence in the fossil record that would suggest that the evolution of tail clubs was really driven by predators. Uh, And we just couldn't really find any evidence for it. It doesn't mean there is none. It's mostly that we just don't have a good enough fossil record. Um, But for people who might want to argue that like, oh, well, it's because like, you know, tyrannosaurs drove that. Well, we actually can't say that from the evidence that we have. Uh, We didn't see any correlations between like predator body size and the appearance of tail clubs or like if tail club size evolved in relation to predator size We didn't see any links Mm -hmm. with specific types of predators. So, you know, it's not sort of specifically when tyrannosaurs appear. And then, you know, we also point out that, um, you know, many ankylosaurids also coexist with nodosaurids that do not have tail clubs. Um, And so, yeah, so that I think is a little harder to explain as being really like predator driven, but is a really good example of, you know, intraspecific combat sexual selection being kind of the driving um, selective pressure behind this weird structure. Right. Yeah, that's brilliant. Do, do we have any Tyrannosaur specimens that we know of that have pathologies or, or breakages that may be associated with uh, ankylosaur tail clubs? Yeah, so that is something that has been noticed before by people other than myself, um, in particular Darren Tanky at the Terrell Museum. So uh tyrannosaurs do seem to have a higher frequency of broken shins uh compared to other types of theropods like allosaurus for example Uh um and so there are quite a few examples of tyrannosaurs with weird pathologies on their shins actually sue the t-rex has a really weird shin um it's a little unclear if it's a break or if it's an infection or something else uh But it's really hard to say for sure if that's from an ankylosaur, uh, because you could break your shin in lots of different ways. You could just trip and fall, or you could have a bad run-in with another dinosaur. Um, But it is kind of interesting that tyrannosaurs at least sort of seem to have them at a slightly higher rate. Uh, And so that's, of course, the origin of the second part of Zool's name. So Zool's full name is Zool Kurovastator, and that second part refers to, or it means the destroyer of shins, and that was in reference destroyer to... Destroyer of shins. Yes, and that was sort of a nod to the idea that they use them as weapons against predators, um, which I still think is possible and is a fun thing to riff on. Um, but yeah, but I, I think that probably when we look at sort of the sum total of the evidence, when we look at modern animals and why weapons evolve in modern animals... Uh, I think that sexual selection is just a better 
explanation for why we have tail clubs and ankylosaurs. Right. Excellent. So between Zool and Borealopelta and all this interesting stuff that's been coming out of the, the Southern Hemisphere recently, how great of a time is this to be an ankylosaur researcher? It's a really <laughs> great time. Um, yeah, so I sort of think about Zool and Borealopelta as kind of like cousins or like siblings in a way because they were both announced and named really close to each other in time, both in 2017, kind of in the spring summer. Um, and they're just really cool. Like they're on different parts of the ankylosaur family tree, but, you know, to get these two really exceptional specimens in Canadian museums, both from Western North America, from these two different time periods was just really cool. And, you know, so much information. And then, yeah, over the last year, the discovery of Stegeros um, in particular, which seems to have evolved a tail club, like completely independently of other ankylosaurs is just super interesting. And I actually think that that's pretty compelling evidence again, that, there seems to be a sort of sexual selection uh, factor at play because they've got this interesting weapon, but in a totally different format uh, and arising completely independently. So I I just think that's really interesting. Yes, of course. Uh, Well, Victoria, that's absolutely fantastic. Thank you uh, again so much for your time. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, It's great. Uh, Thanks for the interest in the paper. And I always like getting a chance to talk about Zool. (laughs) Thank you very much. And uh, I must, of course, mention... I must, of course, mention the work of two wonderful artists for this paper. The interpretive illustration of the fossil showing the arrangement of Zool's armor and ostoderms by Daniel Dufour, and the almost cinematic artwork by Henry Sharp illustrating the combat itself, uh, with bits of broken spikes flying off as they're struck. I'm particularly fascinated by Henry's own explanation of his process in creating this illustration. Uh, Henry made digital sculptures of Zool and pose them together to see how they might have fought. And amazingly, he says, there was only one position that allowed them to mutually strike each other with the same injury patterns seen on the fossil. So there you go. All right then, let us on to our Tetsukon review. Yes, uh, so, all three of us attended Tetsukon. How was it? How was it? It was good. I was particularly impressed by the venue did really well. Um, I think Chris Manias 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 had Manias had a bit of a hand in that. Uh, The drinks reception on the first evening was particularly impressive. Unusually good for a Tetsukon. So yeah. Oh yeah, and the talks were good too. um, Yeah, the talks. talks. I do think the talks were quite good this time around. As you said, it was the first one even in a couple of years that's been in person. And therefore, meeting people again after such a long time, meeting new people. There's all sorts of wonderful, interesting people there to meet and chat with. So, yes, it does. The talks then do suddenly become least, less memorable. But there were some really excellent ones. Uh, the there first were some one. Really excellent ones. Jack Ashby, yes. Yes, Jack Ashby's talk on the great. platypus. I learned a great deal in that talk. Um, really, really enjoyed it. Uh, of course, we also, must also mention really that, uh, that Natalia yes. on the second day and her breakneck speed hyperdrive terrestrial talk. Yeah, but that one was great too. It was. It was. I, I just <laughs> I like making fun. But yeah, it, that was really entertaining. Very entertaining. <laughs> yes. One of the most entertaining 
uh, talks, I thought, with all the little jokes thrown in and everything. It kept you engaged. Well, it could have been quite a dry subject matter in that it was all about just finding a fossil and you take it back to the lab and you prepare it. I mean, it's obviously fascinating stuff, but you could make that yes. very dull. But Natalia did a really good job of just going, putting point after point after point, bang, 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 throwing in loads of jokes. And it was uh, it was a laugh. I really enjoyed it. Um, yeah, it was a step-by-step guide to describing your own pterosaur, which um, it was a bit of a pterosaur morning on the Sunday morning because that followed Elizabeth Martin Silverstone's talk on why you should or shouldn't uh, CT scan a pterosaur. Which I thought was also really interesting. Yeah, it was also also interesting. All of the ins and outs of CT scanning and how that works and doesn't work sometimes. And yeah, and there was a discussion involving um, both of the aforementioned plus Mark Whitten and John Conway. John Conway. That man again. That him again. Who, uh, <laughs> who also, of course, um, was in another panel on the first day uh, yes. talking about the very things we yes. uh, discussed a few episodes ago. Um, ten years of all yesterdays. Covering some of the same ground that we covered. So really, that talk was redundant. Uh, the real scoop yeah, was we, our uh, interview with him. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, we all felt really smug during that. It's like, yeah, we all know this already. We've been told. Yeah. <laughs> Get us. <laughs> That's fun. It was a good talk, though. Um, yeah, it was good to see Memo again. Memo, who also, of course, popped up on the panel on the second day. Uh, sorry, the second panel on the second day, which was all about designing aliens, speculative zoology, which isn't normally my bag. But it was kind of interesting. I really appreciate the contribution of Adrian Tchaikovsky, a great name as well. Yeah, um, but I didn't uh, go into to that um, discussion thinking that I was going to derive much from it. I have to be truthful, but I did end up enjoying it very much. We also had, of course, our friend uh, paleo artist Joshua Knuper on that panel. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't aware that he had a, a business on the side designing aliens. Man, what does that guy not do? Sleep. Well, exactly. <laughs> he doesn't sleep. It's just um, he will not stop. Yeah, impossible. He has no remorse I, uh... or pity or fear, and he will no. not stop ever. He's like he's one the of those tourist bunnies that just keeps no. going. Exactly. Or, you know, some kind of killing machine from the future. <laughs> Quite possibly. So, yeah, that, that alien design discussion, uh, surprisingly interesting. Dougal Dixon was there as well. Uh, Gert van Dijk was there. Jennifer Colburn was there. Yep. One of the great vexations, I think, for us is that because if we took part in the Paleo Art Workshop, it meant that because it ran concurrently with the uh, rest of the afternoon's talks on the first day, we had to miss the rest of those talks, uh, which unfortunately was the case for us because none of us, uh, uh, I mean, that is to say all of us were in the Paleo Art Workshop, meaning that none of us could be in for the talks on the first day, uh, on the afternoon of the first day. Yeah, it's always a Which meant that we did miss Jennifer Colburn's talk on could ancient theropods use tools, which I was particularly yeah. interested in. Apparently, it was mostly um, about birds. I suppose that couldn't be helped. Yeah, I heard that. Probably from the same person. Ah, still. <laughs> but yeah. <laughs> um, I was going to say, but we did get to go to the Paleo Art Workshop, where initially there was discussion on what would go into a good Paleo Art exhibition in a museum, which led to a heated debate on the table I was sat on between Louise Ray and Steve White. Um, and we all sat there, utterly enthralled, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> as these two beardy old guys thought it out <laughs> well Natalia Jagielska and uh, another great uh, paleo artist uh, Joanna Kobieska was in my group and, and we took the, the exercise extremely seriously yeah. um, I wasn't sure whether at, at the end of, of that discussion we were going to, to have to get up and, and do a presentation of what we we're going to do or not because yeah so we're at the paleo art workshop uh, we've had that discussion and now Mark Whitten tells us about 
Danis Trophius. Yes, which uh, which we all had to reconstruct, of course, um, as part of the, the remaining exercise. The question was, what is Stanis Trophius up to with that ridiculously oversized neck, right? Yeah. And rumor right. has it that there might be a paper on that quite soon-ish. We were sort of asked to speculate on what it was using that neck for. And uh, some really interesting ideas and goofy jokes came up. Yeah, as I said, I saw the Weedy Sea Dragon sort of disguised idea about Tanistrophius sort of come up. Just a bit of idle speculation. But of course, um, Darren actually doodled exactly that in my copy of All Yesterdays back in 2012. <laughs> so it's funny oh, how people come up with you know, the same uh, idea over and over. But um, it's like, yeah, that's a crazy idea. Yeah, it's been done. Um, what else do we have? Well, mostly just like, oh yeah, uh, Jed Taylor, that is, drew a very nice image where he completely, basically he drew the body first and then the neck and then just ran out of room for the head. So it's going off the top of the page, <laughs> yes. which is very convenient, Jed. <laughs> very convenient. Yep. We Sorry. all love Jed dearly. Um, but he, he was part of the um, the great Mesozoic art signing event, yep. um, which... Uh... Which we should talk about because uh, Steve White uh, gave a talk about the book. And uh, once again, used the sentence "herding cats," yes, which he also did when we interviewed him. Yeah, yes, I mean that—that that is the title of the talk itself, "Herding Cats," which uh, quite neatly summarizes all the trials and tribulations of of getting such a book published. But yeah, the, the book itself—my goodness, what a triumph! It's a bit good, isn't it? It's a bit good, isn't it? So my, as I said in my review, my only reservation about it is that the we didn't hear more from the artists like we did in the previous books. On the other hand. Yeah, there's a lot of very spectacular artwork in there. It has maybe the greatest variety of style in there so seen so far, even though it does miss the 3D sculpture work of uh, Dinosaur Art 2. Nevertheless, it's a huge variety of styles. And it is such a stark contrast with the original Dinosaur Art. I mean, Yeah, if you wow. take those three volumes together, you can really see how far we've come in it's such like a, a short step time. Step, step by step evolution. Exactly. <laughs> in that period. Yeah. So yeah, Mesozoic Art by Steve White and Darren H and a whole bunch of artists. Uh, go check it out if you haven't already. We've talked about it quite a bit on the podcast, but uh, it's out now and highly, highly recommended. Yes, and there'll be a link to my review in the show notes, I've decided. And uh, I think there will also be a link to um, yeah, yeah, yeah. to the place where you can get it, if you don't oh, already. Yeah. <laughs> uh, speaking okay. of the future of Paleo Art, there was another book launch event, though... Actually, more likely, it was a rethread of uh, a book launch event that happened earlier in the month. Oh, uh, yes, uh, a history of painting by John Conway. That man again. <laughs> yes, there is no escaping. Yes, um, it is essentially the same talk that that John gave at his separate launch, and it was a very interesting look at you know, some of John's uh, thought processes in in his tributes, if you will, of famous historical paintings. With any luck, I will be doing a blog post. My God, I was about to say, Nati will be um, writing a review. Nati will <laughs> will be writing a review. <laughs> Will. Yes. Will. Well, yeah, I, I can't escape it now. I, you will. You heard it, folks. Yeah. <laughs> the reason I associate this book with the future of paleo art rather than with the history of art, it kind of feels like the next step in the evolution of paleo art is more experimentation with styles. Oh, indeed. Yes. yes. Yeah, and I, I think John once again really has his um, his finger on the pulse, if you will of the paleo yes. art scene 
his finger on the pulse. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of that in Mesozoic art, which is notable. A lot more stylistic experimentation than there was. And yes, that seems to be the implicit or occasionally explicit purpose of this book is to... But I believe John did actually just come out and say, well, this is about seeing what happens if you apply different styles to paleo art and just experimenting, experimenting over and over and over with all these different styles. Plus, of course, it's just funny to have the Mona Lisa as a heterodontosaur. I mean, yeah. <laughs> first time I picked up a copy of that book, I opened it on that page and just burst out laughing um, because Mona Lisa parodies are inherently funny. Never mind when you stick a dinosaur in it. Wait till you see Frida Kahlo. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's say. another good one. Or the one, scream yes. or the girl with the pearl earring. Oh, the girl with the pearl earrings. Oh, oh, that's, that's a great beautiful. one. Yeah. That's my favorite. <laughs> it's so good. By far. Yes. Yeah. Which yeah. leaves Mark Whitten and Eleanor Michael. Uh, or Michelle. Which one is it? I think it's Mike Mitchell. Michelle. Yeah. It's Michelle. Michelle. No, um, it's yes. Michelle. It's Eleanor Michelle. Yes, the art and science of the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. Of course, once again, uh, covered on the podcast when we interviewed Mark Whitten. Yes, cover much of the same grounds. That's right. um, not exactly the same. Uh, you know, we're just, we obviously are, are very, very privileged to have interviewed all these people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, no, oh, it, 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 was, it was a really, really, really fascinating talk. I always love hearing about the history of the Crystal Palace, the history of the, of course, of the sculptures, um, their development, like Richard Owen's real role. I know that um, Darren is quite keen on everyone not always pointing out that Richard Owen was kind of a bastard, but he was, though. <laughs> he just was. I'm sorry. He, well, he was a genius. If nothing else, he was, he was not particularly involved with the sculptures. No, that's the main point being made in this case. No, but he did like to take credit. Um, I mean, we can go. Advice. We can go on and on about Richard Owen, right? Have you read um, a short history of nearly everything by uh, by Bill Bryson? No, because he uses like five pages to point out how evil Richard Owen was, which is more more consideration than he gives to nearly any historical scientist. You see, this happens again and again in different books. Um, yeah. It's not. I don't think it's anyone has. A, it's not. It's not that anyone has a particular agenda. I don't think it's just that he actually was not. No, anyway, that's really enough, was Owen. not. <laughs> yeah, that's enough, Richard Owen. <laughs> we should talk about the people who do yes. the actual work. Here. But yeah, yes. the Crystal Palace talk, therefore, was uh, a very a good end and, and precursor to the following day's excursion. Yes. Naturally. Yes, although we had the Tetsukon quiz in between, of course, and the pub trip, but that wasn't part of the official thing. But we had the Tetsukon quiz, which is always amusing to watch if less amusing yeah. to try and participate so, in. Uh, last, last time we did the quiz, I got 14 points, um, which was just about not enough to win a prize. This time I got 13 points. No, but a respectable mark. <laughs> Which which is less, but there were so many prizes that I ended up winning something anyway. There you oh, go. Yes, of course you did. Although at the end he was giving out prizes to any old idiot. I mean, uh, he happened to be there. <laughs> at the end, uh, they, in joke. At the end, he also gave uh, prize, prizes to uh, the people who had attended every single in-person TetsuCon, which, which happens to be you two and another guy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we've been there. Every single one. We, have, we are yes. grizzled veterans. Of um, Tetsukon at this point. Though, of course, uh, Albert Chen won. And um, his first prize was a uh, valuable object indeed. Mm. What's it now? <laughs> You're supposed to say what it is. Listen to me. Uh, <laughs> Listen to me, feigning innocence. He actually says it himself. We, we interviewed him later on. So uh, stay tuned and you'll find out. I'm very honored. Uh, so uh, the Crystal Palace excursion on the Monday. Yes. That was a good time, wasn't it? 
was um we're split into two groups by the fact that we got there and the other group had already sodded off so we had to um form our own group with um chris manias as his general sort of head it actually turned out quite well and also uh, eleanor was there and we haven't even mentioned Reese yet. Reese Griffin. Reese Griffin. What I, a I, I guy! I didn't mean precisely to talk about him. Yes, I actually meant to talk about him when we were talking about the uh, Paleo Art Workshop yeah. earlier. But, yeah, Reese did uh, give a talk. He was sort of roped in to give a talk at the last moment during the Paleo Art Workshop, and it concerned his scanning of the Crystal Palace models in order to generate highly, highly, highly detailed. Um, computer models of them. Incredible work. Yes, it's immensely useful in the future, of course, for conservation. Um, invaluable for conservation, really. So, yes, he is. Exactly. He's a hero in my eyes. Um, he also happens to be a computer. He's an animator. He was involved in Planet Dinosaur years ago. And that's how I originally um, spoke to him at TetsuCon a few years back. <laughs> I was like, I'm so sorry for being mean about right. it. <laughs> but, um, but yes, no. But his work on Crystal Palace has been phenomenal. Um, and he has some absolutely fantastic stories yes. to tell as well. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you ever there. meet him, if you ever meet Reese Griffin, buy him a drink and ask him how he found those pterosaurs. You won't regret it. <laughs> well, I do yeah. pronounce it pterosaurs, as that is the correct pronunciation. Reese is also a, a regular listener to the podcast, and he had some very kind things indeed to say about it, um, for which we are, of course, eternally grateful. As you know, we've had some very kind reviews, but those have usually been things left online and across social media and so forth. But uh, but Reese was the first person to come to tell us um, how much he enjoys listening to yeah. us. Which uh, uh, it actually happened uh, a few times, um, and it was lovely every single time. Oh no, such such a thing can never uh, uh, pall in our estimation. Do you know Rory Brennan? Yes, Rory Brennan, uh, a wonderful uh, sculptor. He actually came up to me and gave me one of his 3D printed T-Rex skulls, just as a, as a little uh, tribute, That's if wonderful. you will, to, uh, to the podcast, which uh, I was quite tickled and, and humbled by. So Rory, if you're listening, oh, thank you very much indeed. Fantastic. I'm uh, very happy with it. Uh, it survived the journey back and it's, uh, it's on my Excellent. desk now. Yes, and we were very lucky to have Eleanor there on the Crystal Palace trip because, of course, she is the most insightful person probably out of anybody about what's going on. It was a bit freezing, but it was the fascinating talks more than made uh, yeah. up for it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I have to say I am especially uh, impressed by how quite impervious Eleanor was to the cold <laughs> throughout, throughout the whole tour. Yeah, I must find out where she buys her outdoor wear. Yeah. It's got to be quality stuff. Well, in the end... A good time was had by all, as can be heard, of course, in our um, little snippet interviews with various people who were there. Yes, we uh, we conducted a lot of interviews, actually. I think the footage turned out quite nice because the, the idea was, and this was actually Darren's idea. Darren approached us to do sort of an impression of the event whereby we would interview anyone, really. Uh, and I think we got a good mix of speakers just regular attendees like you and me, and people who are involved with the whole uh, organization in one way or, or another. Yeah, we have a whole bunch of interviews now. And if you were there, you are probably going to uh, be familiar with some of the people whose voices you're about to hear. And maybe you are even among the people who were interviewed. Who knows? I want to mention, obviously, that the highlight of the interviews is the one with Abigail, the Sclidosaurus. Exactly. Yes. Um, uh, yes. So Abigail, eight years old, who um, was joined by her mother, her long-suffering mother, I guess, and uh, who actually did win the Paleo Art Workshop, so shout out to her. 
I hope you're listening to this. I hope everybody else is listening yes, to this. That's wonderful. So yeah, here's a whole bunch of interviews with a whole bunch of people who were at TatsuCon 2022. Enjoy listening, we go. and we'll see you after. Hooray. So here we are at TetsuCon 2022. I'm here with Mark and and Peng, and we've got uh, we've got a, a cable of a microphone wrapped around me several times. But I'm here with a representative of the Friends of the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs Foundation. Hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm I'm great. So uh, what's what's your name, and explain what the foundation of the Friends of the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs does. Okay, my name is Sarah and I'm a trustee of the charity known as Friends of Crystal Palace Dinosaurs and this was set up around nine or ten years ago by someone called Eleanor Michelle and, um, and her friend Joe. and they uh, set it up because they could see that the dinosaurs weren't being cared for in the, in the appropriate way and they wanted to make sure that people knew about them and cared about them and that they were loved uh, just as much as um, they love them. And uh, so they set the charity up and the idea was to get the sculptures onto the at-risk register with Historic England. Uh, they thought that would take about six months. And they set the charity up in 2013, 2014. And in February 2020, the dinosaurs went on the at-risk register. So it took rather longer than they anticipated. And the charity has kind of shifted in the meantime. Um, the focus has changed. We're now, obviously, we're still trying to get people to conserve the dinosaurs and um, make sure they're still around for another 170 years or so. Um, and in addition to that, we're also, we have very strong social media presence. We're asking people to follow us on social media, which is at CP Dinosaurs. Um, because what this does is demonstrate to funders just how much people care about them and how important they are and how significant they are to all sorts of um, like endeavors, so scientific endeavor, you know, uh, communities, um, also artistic as well. Uh, they're very important in the local community because it's something really significant that you won't see anywhere else in the world. So it's really a very important site to uh, all sorts of different people and that's what we try to impress upon anyone that visits them and anyone that sees them online. And um, so we're here at TatsuCon. We've got little postcards that we're selling, uh, or that we're giving away. And then we've got t-shirts we're selling and books and little enamel pins of the Crystal Palace dinosaurs. And all this goes towards us being able to spread the word even more in all sorts of different festivals and um, conferences and to do stuff online as well. Lovely. Thank you very much, uh, Sarah. Good luck selling all this, and uh, we'll see you again on, uh, on Monday when we uh, have the uh, Crystal Palace Dinosaurs excursion. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Have a great convention. So yes, we are speaking with the man, the legend himself. Would you say legend? No. Fair enough. Yeah, the man, Dougal, um, the man, Dougal Dixon, the father of speculative zoology, according to his name tag. Um, so yes, you are quite the name in the world of popular dinosaur books, having published, I think about, how, how many would you say now? Uh, well, uh, my website says uh, 210, but that, that's, um, uh, that's the list that you glean from um, uh, things like the uh, uh, public lending right list, uh, uh, the number of titles that are out there. But of course, that, that, that involves uh, um, diff uh, uh, different editions of the same book, but uh, of course, as well as that, there's stuff that I've ghostwritten for other people, so it all sort of it all balances itself out. So that's a, uh, that's a pretty reasonable figure. It's uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised it's so low. It seems to be like it must have at least, it must have at least 500 at this point. I mean, um, d d in 40 years you could, uh, of a career, you can only write so much. Well, it's, it's, I mean, what would you say is your um, the favourite project that you've worked on through all of them? I mean, it's quite an ask. Well, most most of the things that I do is commissioned work. You know, the, with my background and experience, I'm uh, commissioned to write children's dinosaur books and handbooks and fossil collecting and uh, articles for. Uh, encyclopedia, geological articles for encyclopedias and the likes like and that, that, that sort of thing. Uh, it's the children's dinosaur books that I get to um, uh, write most often because that's, really that's where the interest is, that's where the money is. So, so that's, uh, uh, that, that has been my stock in trade. Now, you asked me favourite books, well, um, yes I started saying that most of the stuff is commissioned work but one or two things are, are, are the books that I have uh, developed in my, uh, by, by myself, as it were. Um, those are like Afterman and the New Dinosaurs and Green World, which is still to come out yet. And um, um, uh, th those are the ones that are my babies. Yeah, um, th thanks very much for speaking with us. So oh, you're very welcome. Uh, thank you for the invitation. <laughs> so we're here with CM Kozeman, all the way from Istanbul. How are you? I'm, I'm feeling very well, thank you. Just for posterity, it's the 2nd of December, 2022, and I just had a really nice day at the first day of the TetsuCon Experience event. So you just participated in a discussion about uh, all yesterday's 10 years on. How'd that go? Well, it went splendidly well, I think. Um, the only critic was I, I would have loved to hear what people think and maybe speak even less than we did because, I mean, ultimately all these works like All Yesterdays or any other popular book in paleontology or beyond, they exist uh, thanks to being able to live rent-free in the heads of our fans. And <laughs> I, I'm... I'm I, do you get this feeling as a creator, like you could be an author, a musician or something, like you do something, like you kind of don't want to turn back and look at it? It's not, mm, it's not a sense of cringe, but it's a sense of maybe wanting to move on. Believe me, I, I know. <laughs> it's uh, interesting you say that because John, when we interviewed John about, well, the same thing, actually, and he said that he would never want to do an All Yesterdays 2 uh, or, or revisit it. I mean, would, would you also say that you want to move on, you don't want to revisit it? I mean, in a way, I did All Yesterdays too when I, I did the All Your Yesterdays project and I kind of, we had a contest and a call for entries and because it wasn't kind of kosher to turn a contest into a sellable book, it became a free ebook which everyone can download. I think that was more interesting than uh, drawing All Yesterdays all by ourselves again. So I think there could have been like, there could have been with the necessary uh, persistence, there could have been a yearly or bi-yearly editions of this. Like, uh, for example, sci-fi and fantasy illustrators in the States have this uh, book series called Spectrum, which comes out every year, if I'm not mistaken. And it's an illustrator's compendium to the best uh, sci-fi and fantasy illustrators out there in the market. Now, if, if myself included, all of us had more persistence or maybe like, had more of that American sensibility to turn everything into a business line. Maybe we could have done something like that and let the fans come out with their uh, creations. Or something like the almost real zine, which I believe is published by uh, American enthusiasts for uh, speculative evolution. Some like rolling project like that, 
where we only pick and choose and write the editorials and then people get to showcase their amazing works, you know. I think that's kind of a runaway train now, but I, it's something that I would have liked to exist. But other than that, I, I'm, heavy, I'm happy having done that. And I mean, I will never stop drawing dinosaurs, but maybe it's time we let the next generation make the next all yesterdays. Well, fair enough. I see you have some uh, original All Yesterdays and uh, Snyad, perhaps, artwork to sell? Yes, uh, not Snyad, but All Yesterdays artwork plus uh, a hecking bunch of speculative evolution artwork, which are not Snyad distinctly, but like things like uh, animals with clubs instead of clothes or a rad, rad gal riding an insect-derived motorcycle and all of these illustrations and more. They're executed in this new technique, which I am beginning to enjoy this year, which is just very fine black and white line art prints, hand-colored by watercolor. It's a variation of the old naturalist's technique that you see in many natural history books, in especially 19th century and before. So I'm really enjoying doing them, and uh, I hope people are enjoying them as well, because I'm selling them downstairs. And... You know, in Tetsukon or beyond, if you visit my website, cmcosman.com, you can acquire prints and originals of my artwork uh, at reasonable rates. Well done. <laughs> well done indeed. So uh, tomorrow you're uh, participating in another discussion, I hear? Yes, let me see. What was it? I think it was about designing aliens. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think I'm not, like, directly on the board, but I, I will be there, like, pitching questions. yes. I mean, it's one of my uh, one of the few things I'm good for, huh? <laughs> Realistic aliens. Well, there you go. Thank you very much, Memo. Yes, and it's going to be a great experience. Uh, I mean, being there with greats of the field like Gert van Dijk and uh, Dougal Dixon. I mean, so I I I get the fans' enthusiasm as well as the artists' enthusiasm. So it's a great event. Thank you very much. Have a great day. So here again at TetsuCon 2022, and I'm here talking to Abigail. How are you? Good. So uh, how old are you, Abigail? I'm seven. No, I'm eight now. You're eight now. Congratulations. So this is your first time here at uh, TetsuCon? Yeah. What gave you the idea to visit this place? My mum basically took me. <laughs> You, you, you recommended this to her? Yes, I did, yes. I thought it's full of her people, all the people that she can have um, proper conversations with who love dinosaurs and prehistoric creatures. Because <laughs> we don't know anything about it, so she really connects when she comes there and meets like alike people. <laughs> right, so uh, this, is a, this is a great place to come and, and talk about lots of dinosaurs and, and extinct animals. Yes. What's your favourite? It's a Scalidosaurus. Which, which one again? The Scalidosaurus. Scalidosaurus. Well, that's a pretty one, isn't it? That's the one you can find it at, the, uh, at the NHM, can't that's you? That's an interestingly somewhat obscure choice. It's the one that, you, that people have found in Charmouth. Sorry, they have a cast on display there, the really, um, really complete cast, where you can see all the detail on it. All the I actually have a scoop from that. I was given that. Okay, that's amazing. Who gave that to you? Um, Kieran. That's, that's lovely. 
He was a volunteer that works there, basically. That's, that's, that's amazing. So uh, have you given it a nice spot in your house? Technically, it's at my friend's house because I left it there, but... <laughs> well, there you go. I hope your friend takes good care of it. You've seen a few talks now about different, uh, different subjects. Did you enjoy them? Yeah. Do you mostly understood what they were on about? Uh, yeah. You haven't had a chance to chat to any of the, uh, the scientists, like the proper, the proper nerds? Yeah, I've I've talked to uh, Mark Whitten before and David Hone and uh, Dean Lomax and Dr Ashby. I don't know who that is. He's the guy with the platypus book. Oh, right. Yes, that's correct. <laughs> so you've talked to them. Have they been nice to you? Yeah. And I'm sure they had all sorts of interesting things to say. Yeah. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? Are you going to be back next year? Are you going to be a Tetsu, Tetsu regular from now on? Possibly. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I look forward to seeing you again. Thank you very much, Abigail. And thank you too, Mum. Thank you. So I'm here with Charlotte and Spencer, who are here for the very first time. How has your Tetsu been so far, your Tetsu con experience? It's absolutely phenomenal. I mean, um, I've done a bit of work with the Crystal Palace dinosaur, uh, the friends of the Crystal Palace dinosaurs before, but it, it's entirely different with this sort of more public uh, atmosphere with everything and so many fascinating talks about everything from, you know, Australian marsupials to uh, um, drawing dinosaurs and everything. I love it. Yeah, great, isn't it? So wh whose idea was it to go here in the first place? Um, so we're both historians. Uh, we studied here in, in the venue at King's and we know Chris Manias, who's one of the um, people trying to run, to, to popularize uh, paleo art and so on. So um, he invited us to come here and he, uh, we both worked on the Friends of the Crystal Palace Dinosaurs Project because of him. And I think, yeah, we should big him up because he's really doing amazing work. Yeah, he, he is though. He is. Big up, Chris. Go, Chris. Uh, anyway, has has this been? Uh, has it all lived up to your expectations so far? It has so wildly exceeded all my expectations. I think everyone should go to TetsuCon once in their lifetime. Yes, I quite agree. Do you agree? Oh yes, I, I never expected you know an event this big or with so many brilliant people talking all the time at these different events. And it is certainly um, I'm really enjoying it. It's getting people to shut up. That's a problem around here. <laughs> So th thank you very much indeed. Uh, I hope you have a great day uh, this evening and tomorrow, and thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, day two of TetsuCon 2022. We're here with Darren Nash himself. Darren, how are you? <laughs> uh, very well, thank you very much. So how would you say it's been going so far? Uh, I, I, overall, I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, I, I feel like our schedule is quite, you know, quite interesting. I, I've, I've personally enjoyed it, and I've just about managed to stay on top of things in terms of you know, organising it and bringing it together. And uh, this is the biggest edition yet? It is the biggest Tezucon so far with uh, over 190 people. And uh, every year I tell myself to not pack the schedule too much. But um, yeah, I, w whatever. It's, it's great. I think, I think it's the right combination of talks and events and good selection of stalls and things for sale. So, yeah. I was going to say, I don't think it would be Tetsucon, real Tetsucon without a slight element of complete chaos in there. Um, there has to be some chaos. Some chaos. I wouldn't say complete chaos. <laughs> that's, that's supposed to be a, that's okay. That's overstating it. Not complete chaos. That's a, yeah. 
Um, it's not really a, 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 an important question as such, but I just wonder how on earth you manage everything, because even as an attendee, I am completely shattered after just the first day. And yeah, how do you stay on top of everything? I'd like to give a joke answer, which w it would probably if you censored out some of the words, be quite funny. But I'm not. No, I'm not going to make the joke. It was about narcotic substances. But um, no, uh, I, I've, I've naturally never needed to sleep much. Is the answer? <laughs> Just a few hours a night, working. You know, packing the average, packing twice as much as the average hard-working person. Oh my God, that's a terrible answer. But uh, no, it's it's yeah. I, I can't pretend to be well organised, um, or to have a clear itinerary for what I plan to do. But um, yeah, it's. I, I would say that with an event like this, um, it's one of those getting the ball rolling things. Once you once you set up the, the to put in another metaphor, once you um, put the dominoes in line, so organise your speakers, you know, some some weeks or months back, and once you arrange a venue, which you actually having the venue here, which is a, you know, I'm really happy with the venue. I mean, it's just incredible. Uh, to be here in central London as well, you know, where things are so ridiculously expensive. That's something that we set up literally years ago. Um, we did plan to use um, Bush House here uh, for the 2020 meeting. So we set that up in 2019, obviously not knowing about the impending pandemic. Um, but yeah, it's, it's getting the dominoes in place. And I feel that we have a huge amount of like goodwill and cooperation. And um, yeah, just like, yeah, the co cooperation from all, all the people that we've that we ask or need to be involved. So it's a combination of, of those things. But yeah, there's a lot there's a lot of work involved, and how do I manage it? Well, I don't know. That's. Uh... I was going to say, in terms of finding the balance between the paleo and non-paleo stuff, how difficult is that? Because um, there is, and I'm not complaining, of course, but there seems to be a slight bias towards the paleo this year over the non-paleo. So I mean. How difficult is it to find that, and how much does it concern you as such? Well, it doesn't concern me in the slightest, because um, I, you know, I'm more than happy for sort of some years, either for the entire meeting or for sections of the meeting, to be, uh, you know, more or less devoted to you know, whatever that particular topic is. And it just so happened that this year, uh, I think it was off the back of discussions with Natalia. Um, it was like, well, I'd love to have a pterosaur session. We obviously had to do a Mesozoic art-themed thing this year because of the release of the book, which obviously means, therefore, we have to do a whole bunch of things on paleo art more than normal. The Crystal Palace thing as well. The Crystal Palace thing as well. Uh, it's, it's timely, so it's kind of driven by, by those things. It's not a deliberate decision, really, to make it paleo-themed. But uh, oh, I think we've struck the right balance, and I don't hear people complaining. Saying less, less paleo, please. I want more mice. Um, but but one year it will be mouse mouse themed. So uh, in which case you'll enjoy it as well because you'll find that mice are actually really interesting. There you go. So with all that said, and um, all the all the all the work you've been doing, all the all the work it's paying off right now. Are you enjoying yourself? Oh yeah, yeah, li yeah. Life's great. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty serious. Yeah, life's living the dream, man. Yeah. Well, definitely. Can't argue with that. Can't argue with that. So congratulations with uh, this uh, wonderful event. I think we've all been uh, really hungry for events like this to happen again. Um, same time, same place next year? Uh, watch this space, I guess. I mean, quite probably, but I can't yeah. ever guarantee anything. I mean, like, yeah. Hopefully next time it won't coincide with the World Cup. 
I don't even know what that is. It's a, it's a football thing, right? I think so, yeah. So uh, thank you so much, Darren. Um, best of luck with the rest of the, uh, the event, and uh, it's, been, it's been great to be here. Thank you. It's been good talking to you. Thanks so much. So we're here with Matt Dempsey. Um, Matt, this is your first TetsuCon. It is my first one in person, yes. I was at the Zoom one a couple of years ago. It's the first time I've been here in real life. You have some, uh, you have some work on exhibition here. Yeah, so one of the things that I do is musculoskeletal reconstructions of dinosaurs, and I had a space in the art exhibition where I've had those up, and it was a really quite rewarding. A lot of people came to talk to me about my reconstructions. I had a great time. I was going to ask how that ended up happening. It's your first ever event where you turn up in person, and you've already got your art exhibited. So were you approached, presumably, to...? Uh, yeah, so... Uh, a while ago, John Conway emailed like a, a, a large like group of paleo artists that he knew and asked if we'd be interested. So I, I, I'm here because because of that because I got that message from John and I was like, yes, I want to show off and talk about my artwork. I really love to do that kind of thing. So it was a definite yes as soon as I heard from John. Okay, that's great. So uh, your work is really intended specifically for artists or for other scientists to, you know, really figure out the the not just the skeletal, but also the muscle anatomy of these animals? Yeah, I guess a little bit of both. The, the prime reason that I make the musculoskeletal diagrams is so people can use them as reference, so that they have that multi-view reference for different anatomical views that might not otherwise be available, to show parts of anatomy that might otherwise be buried deeply in the technical literature, uh, make them more accessible to an open audience. Well, that's wonderful. Um, I was going to ask, in reconstructing any of the dinosaurs, have you found anything particularly surprising or anything that's emerged in the process of reconstructing them that you weren't necessarily expecting? Ooh, um, one of the things that always uh, gets me is the variation in the amount of kind of like width that you can put around, say, the hips of certain dinosaurs. Uh, there's a lot of diversity in shape. Uh, one of the things, a lot of the muscle reconstructions I do, certain things like muscle volume and muscle shape often have to be best estimates because they can be difficult to work out. But um, I think there's a, there's a tendency a lot of the time to kind of superimpose like a one-size-fits-all soft tissue model onto a lot of different dinosaurs that when you look at them on a, in more granular detail, bone by bone, muscle by muscle, some of those proportions are quite different. And there's a, there's a weirdness of body shape diversity, especially in the limbs of a lot of dinosaurs, which I think is quite interesting to visualize. So that's why I try to cover as many body plans as I can to really show off that shape disparity. Well, that's wonderful. Um, we really appreciate your work. Thank you, do continue. Uh, where can we find your work? Uh, so I have an art station and I post quite frequently on Twitter. Uh, I use the handle Sketchy Raptor on pretty much everything universally. So you can find me by Googling that or just by Googling Matt Dempsey, you'll eventually see. Uh, Matt Dempsey with a picture of a dinosaur next to the name, so that will be that, that's the one that I am. <laughs> Thank you so much. How are you enjoying TetsuCon so far? I'm having a genuinely great time. It's been great to actually be able to see people in person, but also to meet and chat with people who I've interacted with online for years, and you know, finally have a an actual person to put to the disembodied voice on the computer, which is which has been a lot of fun. Matt Dempsey, thank you very much. 
neglected to say was trying to think on the fly uh, during my interview with Chris Manius. Dr. Chris Manius is a historian of science and senior lecturer at King's College. And apart from the popularizing paleontology workshops that he'll be talking about, it is thanks to him, as Mark mentioned earlier, that Tetsukon was able to be held at Bush House this year. Right, we have Chris Manius of King's College with us here, and who is, um, how, how do we call you, uh, a team leader for the, the Pop Paleo events. Uh, would, that be, would that be appropriate? Um, yeah, that would be correct, more or less, yes. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, you, you are a regular attendee of, of TetsuCon, and um, so what have been your impressions so far uh, for this one? Oh, it's been very good to be back in person again, um, which is good. Um, I did enjoy the online ones quite a lot, but it's nice to sort of see everyone again, go to all the stalls and hear the talks yeah, in person. And uh, what, what have you enjoyed in particular? Um, I very much liked um, Jack Ashby's talk um, about his book Platypus Matters and kind of ideas about uh, mammals in Australia, so that was really good. Um, but otherwise, um, I enjoyed the paleo art workshop a lot because that's always sort of fun and very sort of freewheeling. And yeah, those and, and, and also hearing John's talk about his um, new book, even though it's the second time I've heard him talk about his uh, history of painting with dinosaurs, it's yeah, it's worth listening to on repeat. <laughs> Thank you. Can, can you well? Can you just, just give us an overview of, of what the the pop paleo events are and what uh, what how often they take place and and what sort of things you discuss and yes, please. Thank you. Okay, right. Yeah, essentially, it's um, a network which is aiming to get together a whole variety of people who are interested in the question of why paleontology is such a publicly resonant and culturally resonant field, um, despite its sort of often kind of marginal status within wider scientific communities, like why does this subject have such a huge public following and has such, has such a huge public impact on our understandings of the world, um, culture and nature. And so it gets together um, working paleontologists, um, arts and humanities people, um, artists, science communicators and museum professionals to really kind of engage with these questions and think about what is the place of paleontology within popular and public culture and why has it had such a major role. Um, so in terms of how it's developed, um, we've had quite a few physical events, um, relatively small ones of about 20 people each. Um, there have been about six of those, I think, mainly in the UK, but also in the Netherlands and the US. Um, but following the pandemic, we've also recently set up a online set of meetings. So every couple of weeks we get together, either talk about a particular issue um, or listen to a paper about someone's work in progress or questions they've been thinking about um, and have a general online discussion, which has gone yeah, very, very well and means that we can kind of keep up our international network without flying people over, which is always good. So, uh, Chris, you came to the uh, Paleo Art Workshop with uh, a little proposal for the Paleo Art community. Could you uh, elaborate a little bit more on that? Oh, right. So this is a project which is springboarding off the Pop Paleo um, network. Um, it's by no means guaranteed because we do have to kind of do things like send off grant applications for it. Um, but what we really want to do is develop um, a possibly sort of quite mobile paleo art exhibition. 
um, of, on relatively small scale, so probably only involving 10 to 15 works, um, but to really, really think about, um, well, the developments in paleo art which have occurred in very dramatic ways over the last 10 to 20 years, um, but also think about where paleo art can potentially go next and what new audiences it, it can reach. And we're particularly interested in linking paleo art with other artistic fields, so particularly contemporary and fine arts um, institutions and practitioners who are often very interested in the sort of thing that paleo artists are also interested in. So issues around environment, around biodiversity, climate issues and so on, but haven't really communicated very much with paleo artists at all. And so what we very much want to do is sort of build links and bridge different artistic communities. Okay, that's great. How can people get involved with this project? Um, you can drop me an email, um, which um, you can possibly include with the podcast, or what's the best way? Yes, yeah, yeah. So I either drop me an email um, or send me a message on social media. Um, I'm both on Twitter, uh, but more likely to be on Mastodon now, given current events, um, and also Instagram. So either of those. Okay, links will be in the show notes. Chris Manius, thank you very much indeed. Enjoy the rest of the day. Okay, thank you very much. Well, we are uh, Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs reporting from the Tetrapod Zoology Conference 2022. And I have finally been able to claim uh, Natalia Jagelska, our favorite uh, pterosaur researcher. Natalia, how are you? I'm very tired. <laughs> I am shattered as an attendee, so I can only imagine. Um, so what um, you gave us a talk today uh, on, well, on, on your specialist subject, of course. Uh, so how do you feel? Uh, I'm very happy with the response. Many people liked it because uh, it's meant to be a pterosaur session, but I feel like there'll be a lot of journalists and hobbies and it'll be great to do something more general. And that's why I went for a topic of publishing in Pantology with a frame device of pterosaurs. So I hope a lot of people sort of left the uh, talk informed and motivated to do some publishing on their own and understanding more the scientific process because it's something we don't really talk about as scientists uh, and that's the backbone of in pterosaur research and any pantological research. Yes. Excellent. Well, I, I should look forward to hearing further your thoughts on that in that case. And uh, you've also been selling your prints, of course. Uh, how has that been going? I'm overwhelmed. I didn't expect such attention. I'm already running out of all favorites and I regret not promoting more. Like, I don't expect so much interest in something I did in my casual free time and put on this website to have such resonance with people and making them happy and uh, putting some money in my pocket, which I really need because this trip is a little bit expensive. <laughs> yes, of course, but that proves exactly what I've just been saying. You are our favorite, peri um, our peri favorite pterosaur researcher in every way possible. Um, does anyone else have any questions? How did you enjoy the group discussion with um, Mark and John and everyone? Yes, um, uh, behind the scenes, uh, I uh, think is that we are given the question prompts before actual Q&A, uh, which was great because we already prepared with some talking points and we didn't have that, many, that much of blank space uh, uh, waiting of just uh, people going and uh, wondering what to, uh, how to respond. Uh, but yeah, it was very constructive. I'm glad we had a variety of different researchers doing different things. So Max uh, studies more as dark kids, Liz is more within a uh, uh, technical view of uh, and morphological reconstructions, uh, and I'm more of a uh, non-pathologist person. So we had a breadth of different texts represented, different techniques represented, creating for interesting conversation. So it's fair to say that your um, speaking style is best described as breakneck. 
<laughs> I, th that's like every feedback I get, and I never work on it. And I feel so bad. I'm like, that's, I, I, I don't know, I feel very bad if I talk too slowly, and I know it's really getting away. I'm pretty sure this podcast is also going to be, I'll feel like saying, it's like, oh, this person is on some kind of caffeine. You know, it's like, no, I just, that, that's how I speak. I'm so sorry for whoever's listening on the other side. <laughs> I was saying earlier on that we would, um, we're just going to slow you down until you sound like Iggy Pop. So um, enjoy that. But yeah, honestly, it was a very entertaining um, talk earlier on. Um, and one of the few in this, um, this Tetsucon, I think, that has been enlivened by various amusing gifs and memes and things. I mean, um, yeah. Would you, would you say, did, did you always have the idea of making it um, sort of humorous in that respect is to um, keep people's attention I suppose <laughs> that whole thing. well uh, what I'm doing so before you got this is I know it's a like new generation that's really uh, has usually short attention spans likes new images popping on quickly like, that's my how my brain works I like a lot of stimuli of different things different visuals popping simultaneously so I never look too long on a single image uh, and uh, we all now speak in memes. Memes are just ideas that are carried forward. Like, I didn't know about the age range of the audiences, so I might have turned down some uh, more R-rated memes of some, like, I have, like, two uh, things, the words that we should be saying to kids on the presentation. I didn't know there'll be the audience. I hope they just pass by them. Uh, but, uh, yeah, humor is a big aspect of how we communicate, and that should be also going to how we uh, the lectures and develop science. Natalia, thank you so much for your time, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you. And I hope you also enjoyed the experience and the podcast will pan out well. Uh, looking forward to hearing it. In <laughs> Thank you so much. So Tetsu Con 2022 is about wrapping up and we just played the infamous Tetsu Con pub quiz and in probably the least surprising twist of this World Cup season, the winner for the 170 million time in a row is Albert Chen. Albert, how do you keep doing it? <laughs> well, that's not completely true. I've actually only won twice, although I've come in second place a few more times. Um, and I, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I guess uh, my interests overlap with Darren probably a fair bit in terms of our zoological uh, focus. So I end up just knowing a lot of this trivia, <laughs> I suppose. Um, there are definitely things I don't get. Like a lot of the pop culture questions I tend not to get. But uh, the stuff about animals, uh, yeah, I can get a fair amount of them. So that. Yeah, there's nothing much, much more to that than really, I think. <laughs> Anything you had doubts about, but you turned out to be right after all? Yeah, there, there were a few, I guess. Like some, some of the multiple choice questions I, I, did, I did guess on. There, there were a few uh, fill-in-the-blank ones that I, I took a stab in the dark and got it. But there were a few I didn't. So, yeah, it goes both ways. <laughs> well, congratulations, and uh, congratulations on your uh, extreme, uh, extremely impeccable choice of, of price. Yeah. Um, would you, uh, would you mind telling the listeners what you got? <laughs> yes, so uh, I got a print of Natty's brilliant uh, depiction of Mononychus, based in turn on the depiction of that species in a prehistoric planet. And uh, Alvrasaurs, as those of you who know me from my online profile, know they are some of my favorite dinosaurs. I would say probably the favorite dinosaurs. Uh, and therefore, that was the obvious choice to pick as a prize. <laughs> Brilliant. So how did you enjoy TetsuCon this year? It was, it was excellent. Uh, certainly, I've enjoyed every TetsuCon I've been to. Um, and this year was certainly the biggest one yet. And uh, I thought it was a great experience, as always. <laughs> Lovely. Are we going to see you again next year? Most likely, I would say. I'm sticking around. <laughs> okay, great. Do you have anything to plug online? 
<laughs> well, you can find me at albertanikus, that's A-L-B-E-R-T-O-N-Y-K-U-S, pretty much on all social media sites. I post um, links to scientific articles, my drawings sometimes, uh, and mostly just talk a lot about birds and their close relatives. You, uh, you have a podcast as well? Uh, so I, Yes, I actually do have one. I uh, run it with my friend, Joan Termel, who is an anthropology graduate. And uh, we talk about various topics in natural history about once uh, a month or so. Uh, and it's called Through Time and Clades. So if you Google that, you can find us there too. Okay, brilliant. Thanks, Albert. Yeah. Uh, thank you so much for interviewing. <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that was a bunch of interviews, wasn't it? <laughs> that was certainly <laughs> so a bunch of interviews we definitely just listened to <laughs> yep. just then. Yep. <laughs> no, but it, it was it was good that so many people agreed to speak to us, um, including Abigail, as we mentioned, Matt Dempsey, uh, Natalia, Dougal Dixon, briefly. CM Kozerman. Um, Darren. Spencer himself. and Charlotte. Natalia Yagelska. Yep. Darren Caesar Caesar himself. yes Caesar Darren um, himself etc etc <laughs> so yeah all in all I think a good range as as Neil said it was Darren's idea for us to interview people and we uh, and yeah we, I was like oh yes we can go around just speaking with a few people he said oh yes that's a good start I think he was expecting us to do something else but um we, we just had thought, yeah that's good enough let's do that <laughs> I think we've got a very interesting range of people. Well, it, I mean, it was difficult. Yeah. No, I think I, I think that, that, that we managed as many as we have is is an, a fair achievement in itself, yeah. like, given just Pats how jam-packed everything Pats was. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. yes. Plus, we, of I, course, wanted to listen and attend things as well. We, know, we didn't just want to be interviewed all the time and try to... Well, naturally. We, I, think uh, we, uh, I think we took the time we had and used it well. I think so. Yeah, and... Um, for those of you who wanted a vintage dinosaur art this episode, I'm, I'm very sorry that you haven't got what you... But, uh, you know, next time, next time we'll make well, up for it. Last month was an extra long one, so... Yeah, next time we'll make up for some, we'll do something amazing, mind-blowing next time. Yeah. Mind-blowing, I'll tell you. Um, before we sign off, maybe we should pay some attention to the fact that this has been our second year. How about that? Wow. How about that? It's still going still going it's still going i don't know i don't know what we expected but we just started and kept going going and going and going well i mean hopefully people will enjoy it shout out again to reese who said he enjoyed it and uh well, shout out to quite a few people who uh, came up to came up to us and said they enjoyed it i i really feel vindicated somehow because it really feels like hey i'm not shouting in the void here i know we have oh, a absolutely. bunch of listeners and i Certainly appreciate every last one of you, but it's it's great to hear from you in person as well. Exactly. I mean, screaming into the void is a hobby of mine, but nevertheless, it has been very rewarding. Yes, that there are listeners out there. Um, I know you said not just Reese, but oh, I, think... I, I want to mention Reese again because he's such a great guy. Um, hi, Reese. <laughs> hi, Reese. Anyway, hi everybody else. Thank you. Hi, yes, Rory. thank you all. Hi, Darren. Yes. Hi, Jed. Thank thanks to all the listeners. Hi, Natalia. <laughs> Hi, Agata. If, if you want to be get a shout-out in the next episode, um, verbal shout-out start at the gold tier, which is obviously um, $50 per month. <laughs> I can't even finish that sentence. Yes, now there's, a, there's an inducement for there you. There we go. Yes, I, I told I you mean, we just did it for the money. We're just... Corral all your friends into listening to us and to pledging, if they can, on our We're page. for hire. 
And uh, yes, there are. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's the podcast, I think. Um, thank you so much. Uh, apart from everything else, I had such a great time being back with you in the UK. I'm glad you liked it. And just meeting you in person oh, again was, for the first time. It was time so in... good to have you there, Neil. Who knows how yes. yeah. Glad you had a good time and weren't scared away forever. Uh, we look forward to seeing you over again. And vice versa, of course. Yeah, and vice versa. I do like going Next to Kon in Utrecht. <laughs> yes. I'd actually really enjoy that. Please let <laughs> <Yeah>. that happen. <laughs> I'm sure we could find a venue in Utrecht. Yeah, it'd be very convenient for Dutch fans, German. We do have a university. People. Yeah, Belgians. You know. Yeah, you've got university. I've plenty of lecture theatres and the like. So, yeah, yeah Utrecht. Plus, there's some really excellent um, Belgian beer bars in Utrecht, which is the main thing for the uh, after party. I'm glad you got your priorities straight, mate. Exactly. And uh, thanks again for podcasting with me. It's been a pleasure. Yes, yes, as you say, I enjoyed it very much. Well, thanks again for doing all the work. Thank you, Niels. Thank you, Mom. And thanks again for listening. And this being the last podcast of this year, uh, we wish you a very Merry Christmas and other happy holidays and a very happy new year. And do please uh, continue to stay with us for the coming year. Hopefully we'll have a third one. Yep, and we'll see you again in 2023 with episode 23 serendipity isn't that just serendipity yes. indeed <laughs> hooray okay thanks everybody goodbye final kerstfeest bye thank you bye bye scenes final kerstfeest I think <laughs> I'm going to sing a Christmas song oh god thank you for listening to Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs your hosts were Nati Himapan Mark Vincent and me Niels Hasborg You can find all links and images we discussed today on our blog at chasmosaurs.com. You can find us on Twitter at Chasmosaurs and on Facebook at Love in the Time of Chasmosaurs. If you want to give us your support, please give us a comment or a good review wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also support us at patreon.com slash litc. Our music is by Rohan Long, who can be found at bronzewing.bandcamp.com. Stay safe, look after each other, and we hope to see you again soon. The angel Gabriel from heaven came, his wings as drifted snow, his eyes as flame. O hail, said he, thou lowly maiden Mary, most highly favored lady, Gloria.